This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Today, how taking an honest look in the mirror might foretell your future. Some of the most horrific stories coming out of the Aged Care Royal Commission are about chemical and physical restraints. Well, research is showing that there are better, cheaper and more humane ways of settling agitation and aggression in people with dementia. Using ultrasound to treat Alzheimer's disease. How best to counter misinformation on social media about immunisation. And a study of more than a thousand people followed from birth in Dunedin has looked at them at age 45 to see whether how fast they walk under different circumstances can predict how well or badly they're ageing. In other words, their biological versus their chronological age. And they've compared their findings with what these 45-year-olds were like when they were aged three. The technical term for this walking measure is gait speed, but there may have been an even simpler indicator. Dr. Lena Rasmussen was the lead researcher. Gatespeed has been used as measure of functional capacity, but mainly in older patients and in older, healthy elderly people, but not as much in middle age and not really in young people at all. So in older people, you, so, get, you get people to walk down the corridor and see how far they can walk in six minutes, something like that, isn't it? It's worth a six minute walk? It's actually just like a four or six meter test. So it's more just, can you even get out of the hospital bed? Can you get up and walk? And will you need assistance while walking? And then over a very short distance, for six meter, you can see what is the gait speed in that distance. And that's very closely related to the underlying functional capacity and the health status of a person. People who are walking slower when they are older, they have a higher risk of developing age-related diseases such as cardiovascular disease or dementia. And there's also a link between slower gait speed and even mortality. There hasn't been much work done into gait speed, how quickly you walk, but it's a bit more sophisticated than that earlier in life. And you've been using a New Zealand study called the Dunedin study, which has been following a group of people from early childhood through to what's now adulthood. We learned a lot about childhood behaviour, ADHD and various other things in the Dunedin study. But now you're looking at them at 45 and comparing to age three, and you've looked at gait speed. But it wasn't just gait speed. It was things like dual task gait. Tell me what the tests were you did on the 45-year-olds. We measured gait speed in three different ways. First, we asked them to walk just at their normal pace, and then they were asked to do a dual task, gait speed task, as you said, which means that they had to do a small task while they were walking, and this was that they had to recite alternating letters of the alphabet while they were walking. It wasn't juggling while they were walking. It was Not juggling. Right, it right. was a cognitive task, yeah. Right. And then the final way we measured it was to measure the maximum gait speed, so how fast they could walk without running. And then we've made an average across these three measures of gait speed. And what were you measuring it against? A wide range of associations, mainly indicators of aging and physical and physiological function, like muscle strength in your hands and your legs, how many rises and sits you can do from a chair in 30 seconds, how many steps you can do in two minutes. And then we've looked at brain scans. We've imaged with MRI the brains of all the study members and saw that those who were walking slower, they had different signs in their brains that are telling us that these brains and these people are aging faster. For instance, they had smaller brain volumes, their cortical thickness had decreased, and the surface areas of the brains had also decreased. And so, then moreover, on the brain scans, we could see that they had these white matter hyperintensities that are usually appearing with age. So in a sense, you measured their biological age through a different series of parameters. And what you're saying is that at age 45 
that was their chronological age, but their biological age was a lot older. So for those who were slowest on average with their gait, how many years added on to their chronological age were they? We used this 19 biomarker measure of physiological function where we measured things like cholesterol and blood pressure and a lot of other things. When we compared the slowest walkers and the fastest walkers, there was actually almost five years difference between the slowest and the fastest walkers in the study. Walking is such a simple thing, but it's dependent on the underlying function of many different organs at the same time. So you need your brain, your heart, your lungs, your muscles, your bones, nervous system, vision, and so on, all working together for just doing the simple task of walking. And that's why we can capture this association between aging and gait speed. And you also rated their facial age. In other words, did they look old? What did that show? That also showed that those who were walking more slowly in the study, they also had faces that looked older. When they were three, what were they like? At age three, they went through some cognitive testing and neurological testing. And we found that those who had better brain health at age three and better cognitive function, they turned out to be the faster walkers at age 45. Those with slower walking speed at age 45, they had had worse cognitive function already at age three. So you're saying that their destiny was set at age three? We hope not. Why this link is there, we don't really know. It could be that those with poor neurocognitive function in childhood has worse health behaviors throughout their lives, or it could even be that there could be something more predestined. We don't know. And what about things like social class, education, smoking, and those sorts of factors? Do they congregate in people with slower gait? There's definitely a link between worse lifestyles like smoking and poor diet, low physical activity. But in this study, we've corrected for the childhood family social class. So it's not explaining everything here. Were you able to see whether or not the trajectory of some three-year-olds were able to be changed? Unfortunately, in this study in particular, we haven't looked at any lifestyle changes and how that would have changed gait speed over time. Also, because we haven't measured gait speed at earlier phases than age 45. We think that it's reflecting the underlying health. So if you improve your health, then this might be reflected both in your physical and cognitive functioning and therefore also in your gait speed. We think there's things you can do. So here's, <laughs> the temptation is always to simplify complex things and usually you're wrong. But however, the way you tested gait is reasonably complicated, but they can look in the mirror. If you're looking old at the age 45, should you just get on your bike and get going on a high-intensity prevention program? I definitely don't think that would hurt if you look older and have signs of aging compared to your chronologically aged peers. Then I think living a healthy life wouldn't hurt at all. It would actually probably benefit you in many ways. Lena, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. So what's going on on the outside could well be going on on the inside. Dr. Lena Rasmussen is a researcher at Duke University in North Carolina and Copenhagen University Hospital in Denmark. This is RN's Health Report, and I'm Norman Swan. Could ultrasound waves facilitate the treatment of Alzheimer's disease? That's been the tantalising prospect of research at the Queensland Brain Institute, where they've made significant discoveries in animal models of dementia and are getting close to testing this in humans. Jürgen Goetz is director of the Clem Jones Centre for Ageing Dementia Research at QBI. What we have shown is that ultrasound can be used in combination with intravenously injected microbubbles. And what's then happening when we inject the microbubbles into mice with Alzheimer's disease, the ultrasound interacts with the microbubbles which circulate 
in the this air bubbles? What kind of bubbles are they? These micro bubbles are filled with an inert gas and they have either a lipid or a polymer shell. When they circulate and they have a diameter which is similar to that of blood capillaries. So blood capillaries are the tiny, tiny little vessels that come off arteries and supply the tissue. The ultrasound vein interacts with the micro bubbles and the micro bubbles oscillate, which means they expand and they contract. And this oscillation exerts a pressure onto the blood vessels and they transiently open which means that it's possible to deliver a therapeutic agent which is also injected into the bloodstream. The brain is a protected area from the rest of the body. The body has evolved knowing the brain is really important and it doesn't allow everything in and there's a barrier there. And so you can take drugs and they just don't get into the brain and they certainly don't get to where you want them to get in the brain. It's quite hard to do that. And this is actually a challenge when you think of any antibody therapy which is currently being developed for Alzheimer's disease. A real problem is that only 0.1% of the antibodies actually make it into the brain and also 98% of all drugs which have been developed for brain diseases never make it into the brain. And so ultrasound offers a unique possibility to allow an access of these drugs into the brain. But you've also been looking at it to see if it can actually shake the brain up a bit <laughs> with, with dementia anyway. What ultrasound does, it's not breaking up, let's say, plaques or tangles in the brain. But actually what's happening is when we combine ultrasound with microbubbles, the blood-brain barrier opens transiently, allowing unidentified blood-borne factors to enter the brain and then elicit mechanisms in the brain which allow toxic amyloid, which aggregates in Alzheimer's brains, to be removed and to restore memory functions fully. But we can also use ultrasound in combination with microbubbles as a delivery tool for therapeutic agents. So what we have shown since that it's possible to deliver an anti-tau antibody into the brain. And we should explain here, tau is the other form of, if you like, chemical gunk that's supposedly gumming up the brain. Exactly. And people think that tau might be the key thing, that amyloid is just a side event and tau is the thing you've got to go for. Absolutely, and the challenge really is, and I think that's the great thing about ultrasound, that we have shown that a therapeutic agent such as an anti-tau antibody by means of ultrasound is not only effectively deposited into the brain, but in fact that it can even go into the neurons where all the tau damage occurs. Are you risking causing a stroke with these microbubbles? No, we, the good thing is that there's a lot of evidence from animal work which goes from mice to rabbits and even to macaques, so non-human primates, that there's even more evidence from human trials. And in fact, there's a trial which has been conducted in France where patients with glioma have been treated with ultrasound. And what they did is so they- So this is brain cancer, basically. Yeah. What they did is they created a burr hole and inserted a transducer between the skull and the brain. Basically, what this group in France has shown is that ultrasound, when applied with this invasive approach in glioma patients is safe, even when the ultrasound travels through areas in the brain which have a role in movement, for example, or in language. So when we interrogated the patients, they were perfectly fine. And this treatment also did not elicit any seizures. And did it get drug into the glioma more yes, effectively? Yes. So where are you at with uh, dementia? We have made a lot of progress. We have, in the meantime, we have also moved into sheep. And the reason we why have we have... thicker skulls. Exactly. That's the point. We have a, a skull which is 
in thickness similar to a human skull and also the brain of a sheep is much larger than a mouse brain. So this is then closer to a human situation. And we have been using a lot of simulation and test bed studies but have also been actually treating sheep with ultrasound and we have been able to show that with our approach we are able to safely open the blood-brain barrier in sheep and actually to predict where we are opening the blood-brain barrier. So you're ready to try it out in humans? Exactly. So what we have done since is we have moved from a single transducer element to a bespoke probe. We have established a workflow where we use CT. So you find out where in the head it is and you put a, a, a net on the head with multiple yeah. ultrasound probes. We have, a, we, we have a bespoke probe. So I don't want to say too much at this point. But we have, in collaboration with an engineering company with expertise in developing type 3D medical devices, we have been developing a bespoke probe and we have established a workflow in sheep, which is now allowing us to repeatedly treat sheep and show that this is safe. And so we are getting all the preclinical data sets ready for submission to human ethics. Let's try it out in humans. So we ultimately, we obviously, we are getting ready for a first in human trial. But I should say that the patient recruitment is not done by QBI. It's not done by the University of Queensland, but we have engaged a clinical research organization. And so they will be dealing with that. Jürgen, thank you. Good luck with it. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks, Norm. It was good to talk to you. Jürgen Goetz is director of the Clem Jones Center for Aging Dementia Research at the Queensland Brain Institute. Some of the most disturbing and upsetting stories to emerge from the Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety are those of older people with dementia who are agitated and aggressive and are restrained chemically and physically. Chemical sedation is usually with medications called antipsychotics, which are toxic in the elderly and can cause death. But a new paper from Canada, which has reviewed the evidence, has found that non-drug therapies are more effective and there are few excuses for not using them. Dr. Jennifer Watt is a geriatrician at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto, and I spoke to her earlier. Many people believe that dementia is characterized by memory loss or difficulty finding the right words. But in fact, there are a number of other symptoms. And in fact, up to 75% of persons living with dementia will experience neuropsychiatric symptoms, including agitation, aggression, depressive symptoms, and apathy. Is there any relationship between these behaviours and the degree of memory loss? Yes. As dementia progresses in its severity, you will see increasing numbers of these symptoms. Now, we associate these aggressive or what you call neuropsychiatric behaviours with residential aged care. Is it more common in residential aged care than at home, or is that just a factor of the severity of the dementia? It's difficult to say. However, in studies, we know that about one in four people in the community may experience symptoms of aggression or agitation. However, we know that in a nursing home or an aged care facility, this might be as common as one in two people, or perhaps even higher. And what you've been looking at is whether, um, because of the controversy with antipsychotics and their side effects, including death, putting people onto non-drug therapies for these behaviours. What's known to work uh, before we get onto your study? Some of these interventions include music therapy, recreation therapy, massage therapy, and multidisciplinary care. Now, what you did was a review of the literature comparing them to drug therapies. What did you find? 
we found that these non-medication-based therapies were as or more effective than the medications that are quite commonly used to treat these symptoms of aggression and agitation in persons living with dementia. And were there some that were more effective than others? I noticed something called recreation therapy was probably less effective. Yes. One of the strengths of our study is that not only were we able to compare the medication with the non-medication-based therapies, but we also ranked them in terms of their comparative effectiveness. And so we found that massage therapy or massage therapy combined with music therapy and multidisciplinary care were some of the most effective interventions for treating or reducing these symptoms of aggression and agitation in persons living with dementia. Now, it's comforting to discover this. And you in Canada have the same problems as we have here with aged care and residential aged care. We've got a Royal Commission going on at the moment into aged care, which is uncovering some very disturbing stories about the quality or lack of quality of care in residential aged care. And it's said that one of the barriers to implementing these non-drug treatments is cost, that it takes staff. Did you assess the cost? We did not. However, what we can say is that some of these interventions are actually less time-intensive and expensive than you might expect them to be. For example, in my practice as a geriatrician, would be that music therapy intervention could be something as simple as getting a resident their own iPod with headphones and having family members choose music genres that they know their loved one enjoyed before they developed such severe dementia that they were able to tell us that this was a music that they liked. And it's an example of something I've seen recently in my practice. You'll have multiple people in a hospital room and you might have someone listening to classical music and you could have somebody else listening to rock music. And it's all very relaxing for people. Similarly, you know, massage therapy could be something so simple as simple hand massage for five minutes or hand holding. And again, that can be very comforting. So in other words, what you're describing here are things that a carer could do for their loved one at home. Yes, exactly. You know, I understand why people could say you know, these interventions are potentially quite costly, but they don't have to be. So how do you get the culture change then in residential aged care? Because the statistics are pretty resistant to change, and I believe they are in Canada as well, and they're also giving out Valium-like drugs, benzodiazepines, to subdue residents. How do you change it? What we've seen here in Canada is that there have been policy changes implemented, and there have been a number of initiatives aimed at decreasing the amount of antipsychotics that are being used in persons with dementia because of demonstrated harms, such as increased risk of death. And what we've seen is that in response to these initiatives, antipsychotic prescribing doesn't seem to be going up. It may be going down, but in its place, we're not seeing a compensatory increase in the number of non-medication-based treatments, which would be what we'd hope. We've actually seen an increase in the use of other sedating medications to take the place of antipsychotics. And I do understand that there's some regional variations in the medications we're seeing. Here in Toronto, Canada and in Ontario, we know that a medication called trazodone, which is an antidepressant, has been increasingly used over the last number of years, for example. And so our goal would be that, you know, instead of using medications as effectively a substitute for antipsychotics to instead see these non-medication-based treatments. What's encouraging is that in the short time since this study has come out, 
have been hearing from colleagues as well as caregivers about how they're planning or how they're trying to incorporate the study's findings into the care that they're providing for persons living with dementia. I mean, one of the issues, at least in the Australian context, I suspect in the Canadian context as well, is that the primary medical carer in the nursing home is not a geriatrician, it's actually a local general practitioner. And sometimes residential aged care facilities have their favourite GP who can just order around and tell them what to prescribe. Do you think general practitioners are aware of this sort of evidence? I think based on the feedback that I've had, they've been very open and receptive to having these sorts of discussions. Jennifer, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Dr Jennifer Watt is a geriatrician in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto. She's also at St Michael's Hospital in Toronto. The advent of social media has been a two-edged sword for immunisation. On the one hand, it's allowed those promoting vaccination to get reliable information to parents. But it's also unleashed the anti-vaccination movement to promulgate their anti-science and misinformed narratives. Marika Stephens has studied what can go on in this space and how best to counter the fearmongers. Marika was once a broadcaster with me on the Health Report, but abandoned us and is now at the Institute of Health Innovation at Macquarie University in Sydney. We've never forgiven you, Marika, but welcome back. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I, would, I mean, this has been a controversial area. And, you know, just a, a couple of days ago in the Daily Beast, which is a reliable online newspaper, unlike some of the newspapers, you know, in the United States, you know, despite Facebook saying that it's going to do something about the anti-immunisation movement, it quotes um, them removing reliable ads, 14 ads that the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare put out about free paediatric vaccinations. It removed them and yet allowed uh, ads from the so-called Children's Health Defence, which was virulently anti-immunisation, MMR vaccines, poison pill, reached between 10,000 and 50,000 people. And uh, Facebook took their money. I mean, what is the milieu here in in social media? I think it shows that this is still a work in progress for social media platforms. Um, they have announced various different measures in the last couple of months. Um, they've been demonetising anti-vaccine content, apparently. They've also been prioritising credible content, for example, from the CDC, from the WHO, and also deprioritising anti-vaccine content. This is in search engine optimization, this, or whatever you call it. Well, if you go into the search function on Facebook, for example, and you decide that you want to find out something about vaccines, you might type that into the search. And once upon a time, a whole bunch of anti-vaccine content would have appeared. Now it doesn't appear. So things have been changing, but we still need to look at what's happening and keep them to account. And what's the mode of um, you know, if you look at the anti-vaccination movement, what what are the various narratives? The narratives? Um, well, I think that we're probably all familiar with a lot of the myths that fly around social media. And I want to be cautious about repeating those myths because yeah. it can stick them in people's minds. So I'll say the really obvious ones, this is a myth, but that we all know about the the link that some people like to make between MMR and autism, for example, that's been disproven by a huge weight of scientific evidence, but it still floats around social media, driven in, in large part by anti-vaccine activists. So what was the purpose of your research? The purpose of my research was to look at what we can do about misinformation on social media. So I'm a parent of two young boys. I absolutely believe in the value of vaccination. 
And I'm also exposed to quite a lot of misinformation as a parent. So I'm exposed to it in the playground. I'm exposed. Really? Yep, I am. I'm exposed to it uh, in conversations with other parents. There's a lot of suspicion around the role of pharmaceutical companies, for example. And I'm also exposed to it on social media as well. So I'm a member of various parenting groups. And there's misinformation that flies around in those groups. So for me, I wanted to understand... And this is the paradox where... Um it's the more affluent suburbs that tend to have the lower immunisation rates. That's true. There's various suburbs in Sydney that are very wealthy um, and very highly educated and they tend to have gaps in vaccination. Yeah, and it's, it's, it not, it's not something that you would necessarily expect to happen, but it's there. So is this spreading by word of mouth or is it also spreading by social media? Misinformation. Yeah, it's the, oh. the, the conversation that you're getting in the playground. Well, it's definitely spreading by social media. So there was one study that looked at the exposure that parents have to misinformation on social media and up to half of parents of young children had, come in, had encountered misinformation in that environment. So it shows that there's a huge volume of misinformation and there's lots of people being exposed to it. And that's problematic in my book. So what did you do in the study? So I looked at vaccine promoting organisations on social media, and that includes any organisation that is trying to get the good word out there about vaccines. So that's health departments, government health departments, uh, health services, so that might include hospitals, local health districts, and so on. Advocacy groups. So there's a lot of community advocacy groups out there that are that are talking about vaccination, and also scientific organisations as well. So I wanted to know what their role is on social media because there's no journalist gatekeepers on social media anymore. So someone is taking that role to speak directly to parents. So what challenges they're confronting, and what are their strategies in terms of misinformation? What did you find? Well. I mean, it's a difficult environment that they're operating in. So they, they face lots of challenges. What they described to me was when it comes to talking about vaccination on social media, there are lots of people that accept vaccination, but there's a very small but active and vocal anti-vaccination group that has a disproportionately large presence on social media and it can be hostile and they post quite a lot of misinformation. So when you looked, did you talk to the people who are actually doing the, the promotion of immunisation, do they keep, are they vigilant to what's going on in the anti-vaccination movement? Does that determine their behaviour or are they just getting on with what they do? They're getting on with what they do, but I think it's, and quite a few of them watch that space as well because it informs what they can then say to parents who come to them with questions. So there's, you know, there's a whole range of people out there um, who have different, a different approach to vaccination. There's only a very, very small amount of people who refuse vaccines. It's less than 2% in Australia. The majority of people accept vaccination. And then there's a slightly larger it, group who have questions. it's regionalised. It's by postcodes. So there's some That's postcodes where, where it's quite low. That's true. But on social media, I suppose you don't necessarily have that localised. Um, so so is, is, is it effective for them to directly challenge the active vaccination movement? Is that what you Well, mean? that is the big quandary that they're confronted. So when you're, when you're, when you come across misinformation on social media, do you respond or not? And so they have the option of responding and then potentially getting into protracted, potentially aggressive, hostile conversations with anti-vaccine activists. But and but if they then delete or hide um, or somehow sweep away those types of comments, um, they're um, they're not able to then speak to the larger population that's not necessarily interacting on these comments, but they're listening and taking in information, and and that can. Um, help people feel more confident so about it's, that. So it's hard to measure effect, but um, where, where are there more effective means of communication, at least in this first pass at your study? 
I wasn't necessarily looking at the effectiveness of their communication methods. I was looking at what their strategies are and what their challenges were. And what but there seemed are. to be more effective well, intuitively? So what is more effective is you don't want to always challenge misinformation and always challenge anti-vaccine activists because you can inadvertently amplify that misinformation. Take you into a dark place. It can, it can. And if people are overly exposed to this type of thing, it can make them perceive vaccines as more risky than they really are and it can make the idea of vaccine refusal seem much more mainstream than it actually is, and it's not a mainstream thing. And what about promoting the failure of immunisation so kids who babies are dying of whooping cough or that sort of thing? I think that that can be an effective strategy in some situations, but you need to be careful with um, showing, you know, talk, showing images of diseases and talking about that sort of thing because particularly people who already have doubts and questions, it can backfire. Using so you've that got to go to where the person who's receiving the information yeah. can go. Yeah, you need to know your audience. And you're doing a randomised trial of messaging here. And when you've done that, we will have you back. Marika, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Marika Steffens is at the Institute of Health Innovation at Macquarie University in Sydney. I'm Norman Swan, and this has been The Health Report. Hope you can join me next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.